0: We all know that the life of an entrepreneur is full of high highs and low lows, lots of ups and downs. Today's guest is someone who has taken those edge states, the extreme highs and the extreme lows, to really a whole new level. His name is Akshay Nadavati, and he is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, an addict in recovery, an extreme marathon runner, a scuba diver, a mountain biker, I don't even know how to explain the level of athleticism that has entered his life. But suffice to say that he lives on the edge of what's possible, always pressing into the limits of his body, the limits of his sensory experience. And his extreme experiences have led to struggles with things like post-traumatic stress disorder and, as I mentioned, addiction, but have also sparked in him this desire to come face to face with fear and not flinch. He wrote a book called Fearvana and is someone who does a deep dive into the power of fear to be a teacher. So he is an absolutely interesting human. I think Akshay's ideas, his experience of fear and his way of thinking about fear has a lot of utility for entrepreneurs because when we are building something, when we are pressing into the edges of what's possible for ourselves, when we are growing our businesses, when we are just thinking about how to do better, be better we are often encountering some level of fear and instead of feeling like fear is something that masters us, that shapes us, Akshay's approach is really to kind of listen to what fear can teach us and how to make friends with fear. My words, not his, but I'm super intrigued by his work and so glad that he joined me on the podcast this week. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So, you know, I feel like as I was preparing this interview with you, there were like any number of questions that I could ask you from like, why did you get arrested? To what's the most painful thing that's ever happened to your physical body and how did you cope with it? To hearing some more stories. I mean, you have lived an extraordinary life already. But one thing that I'm curious about that I haven't heard you talk about, and we'll get to all of that other stuff too, but I, I kind of want to begin at the beginning. Can you say a little bit about like your childhood, your early life?
1: Yeah, sure. I was born born in India, born in uh, Bombay, moved from Bombay to Bangalore at three and then Bangalore to Singapore when I was eight and then Singapore to Austin at 13. So moved around a lot and like looking back at it now, I mean, when I was a kid, I was terrified of everything. Everything you know, 180 for what I am today. But at the same time, there were traces of who I am today. In the sense that I remember when we were young, I used to play rugby, and every time I got cut, like when we were in Bangalore, I would get cut, and I loved it. I loved the scar. To me, it was like this wound of war, you know, like a battle scar.
0: Like you'd show it off to your friends and be like, "Hey, look what happened." Yeah, like I was.
1: I still remember this one particular incident. I scraped up my knee. We were playing rugby on a dirt thing. Right, you're going to get scraped up, and I loved it. It was like. I earned that fight you know again not I obviously didn't have the level of awareness and consciousness I do now but I still remember traces of it even in Singapore I used to run barefoot on rocks just to test myself so I feel like I had these traces of who I am today that didn't get cultivated and didn't get enhanced until much later on but I was definitely very lost I mean that's why moving to Austin when I moved you know I was I mean moved around four cities by the age of 13 I was not sure of who I was, constantly adjusting, constantly trying to fit in, and, and as a result, you're not. And when you're constantly trying to fit in, you don't know who you are. You're not standing on your own feet with the sense of confidence and ownership over yourself, right? I'm just molding to every every external environment, and
0: you're just reacting, reacting to what's in front of you, what you have to react to.
1: Exactly, yeah, and as a result, I was very lost, and so found found a dark dark path after moving to Austin. Soon after soon after that. Yeah. About two years later after moving to Austin.
0: One of the things that I am so curious about, about your work is the way that you relate to that word darkness, because in some ways you talk about the dark path, the dark days, the dark moments. And the implication there is that those were, those were painful shadowy experiences, but then you have also chosen to spend extended periods in darkness, like seven days in darkness. And that, that, That creates in you these great, almost a sense of well-being, almost a sense of enlightenment. So what's, what's the relationship with darkness? You're afraid of the dark, you live in the dark, you love the dark, you hate the dark. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah. I love it. That's a fantastic question. I love it because, yeah, so when I talk about these dark times being drugs or the PTSD after the war, losing the friends, and then going into literal darkness of spending seven days in darkness or experience the darker side of humanity, you know, seeing people in conflict zones, in war, working in leper colonies, poverty, women who have been sex trafficked, I think there's, I mean, when it comes to these extreme scenarios, nobody would want it. I don't want people to go through war and the suffering that humanity experiences. But there's value in experiencing both sides of the duality, the darkness and light. I would not be the person I am today would not without having gone through. I mean, when you've mentioned right at the start, right, the life experience I've had. Those life experiences have come from engaging the extremes of the human condition. And you cannot truly know the human condition without having gone into the extremes. I've, I mean, when I was before that, you know, my parents gave me a good life. They were fairly well off. And when we started, they weren't middle class. Now they're much more well off. My dad worked hard his whole career, but I never felt any sort of struggle. My parents loved me, great childhood, couldn't amass for more, right? But I sought out suffering when I joined the Marines and from there just took it to a whole other level. Obviously not some suffering I didn't seek out, it came my way, but nonetheless, I'm grateful for it because it's only by experiencing the edges of darkness that I got to experience even the edges of light. And a very tangible example of that was when I actually spent seven days of darkness. So after coming out of that darkness retreat, the first time seeing the light was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I remember two kind of thoughts going through my mind was one was just this feeling that I wish I could look at the world through these eyes every single day. And the second, which directly relates to that, was I felt a deep sense of gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I'd ever experienced in my life because I realized, and I kind of knew it at this point, I like had already written Fear of Anna and everything, but in this case, I experienced it very viscerally that you can only see the light that way having been in the dark the light would not have looked that way without spending seven days in the dark. And of course, that translates figuratively as well. So darkness is not something to be avoided. It's something to be sought after. And the line there is something we have to be very careful on treading because we can obviously go too far and it can consume us. And it's a line I still flirt with. I mean, to this day, I want to go back into war zones and I have to temper that that line and temper it because it's in some ways going back into a war zone, even though I want to go in with the intention of alleviating human suffering at that degree. In some ways it's also selfish because I could I could help one or two people in a war zone. And this is people have told me, it's like my friends and people who counsel me, you know, who, who support me on this journey is that the work I could do with Firavana could impact many more lives. And it's it's not as exciting sitting on a computer staring at a computer screen working for hours a day, right? It's there's nothing exciting, but going into the extremes of the human conditions in war zones is far more enticing, even though it is dark, even though it's horrific, even though it's scary, but it it sends you into a space of experiencing life that the mundane just, just does not satisfy.
0: I think there's this draw toward edge states. I mean, whether we're talking about the sort of gratification and euphoria of of sex or of being high or of even just a deep attachment with another human, the, the sort of addictive nature of love, and then on the other end of the spectrum maybe, or maybe it's the same end of the spectrum, I'm not sure, but other edge states of physical pain or suffering or things that are associated with fear, they jumpstart this part of our brain and part of our bodies where we feel like oh now I'm really alive and what I when I hear you talk whether it's about ultra running or being in a war zone it's it's really this like connection to your own deep aliveness I don't know if that language lands for you but
1: no, absolutely. It is, you know, it, it is. I think that, I think it's the, again, it's like, it's like the, when you experience the extremes, it's in the extremes that you find the oneness of them, you know, it's that you kind of see that the dark, like in, again, and coming back to the darkest street, you experience it in a very visceral sense, like in the darkness, you actually see light you see light that's as real as anything else. Like as an example, it was day five of the darkness retreat. And I saw this blinding white light, like blinding white light that was, I literally felt like I needed an eye mask to sleep. I was touching my eyelids because I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or closed anymore. And so you experience this darkness and light coexisting. And it's the same thing, even in, even in a figurative way, like war zones, for example. In war, you see the very worst of humanity, right? These atrocities, these horrific things, but you also see the very best in humanity. You see people sacrificing their lives for others. I have a friend who ran into a burning Humvee to save a fellow human. Being, I mean, such a great example of this is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most powerful books, right? I mean, he talks about in his experiences of the concentration camp. Obviously, this is the experience of human evil at its absolute worst. But then he shares these stories of these examples of people in a concentration camp who were, you know, they're tortured, cold, starving, everything, and they would give away their last piece of bread to somebody else who perhaps needed it more than they do. I mean, if that's not the expression of humanity at its finest, what what is? And and I think that that's the hard part is that you have to go to those edges to experience that. And again, the edges can be dangerous in multiple ways.
0: The edges can be addicting.
1: And addictive, very much so. One of my key things in practicing now is embracing the mundane.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because you, you have, and maybe we all have, but you have at least tapped into your deep capacity for being in edge states for extended periods of time, whether that's 40, 50 mile runs in the desert, in Liberia, I wasn't quite sure on that story, <laughs> or seven days in darkness.
1: Yeah, that was uh, 167 miles in Liberia running a marathon a day across the country for a week. But yeah, so experiencing these edge states has become important. That's why hence now is practicing embracing the mundane.
0: Coming back to counterbalance.
1: Yeah, it's a different kind of challenge embracing the, the staring at a computer screen while working. Or that's why writing my book was brutal. It was more, it was harder than, I mean, I used to avoid writing by, by going running, you know, <laughs> something to experience the, the, the visceral experience of life in a more powerful way.
0: I, I've talked with lots of, of veterans and people who've been in conflict zones over the years. And, and that sense of, I want to go back is so common as you know, and as you felt. And sometimes it's to redeem or restore or help, right, in some way. Sometimes it's almost this like compulsive, to use my psychological language, it would be like a a traumatic reenactment. It's the veteran who is staying up all night watching the video That was taken of that explosion where someone was killed was watching it on repeat all night every night right this sort of compulsive i want to i'm seeing it again and again and again and i want to go back there because that's the only place that my internal level of arousal makes sense like my ptsd sort of fits if i'm in a combat zone it's the appropriate reaction to that level of stimulation but it doesn't fit in my suburban minnesota neighborhood
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the experience of war, it meets so many of the human needs in so many ways. It's, you got that high. It's, it's war is simple. This world is so much more complicated.
0: Right. There's good, there's evil, there's bad guys, there's good guys. It's real simple.
1: Yeah. Exactly. You have to worry about living and dying and your mission's clear. It's it's simple. Over here, there's millions of things to worry about, right? Uh, I mean, I remember as a small thing when I came back from war, just meeting girls again was terrifying, you know? (laughs) I'm in college and meeting girls. like one more thing. I got bills. Girl, everything is in war. It's like, oh, missions, stress-free. So it's got that. It's got this, you got the, you feel more alive because you're on the edge of death. When you're on the edge of death, you're inevitably going to feel more alive. You got purpose because separate from the politics of the war and discounting all that on the ground, there's meaning, right? We were there to help the people. We were, we were there to do something. You got the, you got the connection. I mean, Camaraderie of brotherhood and wartime. I mean, what more? Where can you get that kind of experience, you know, that kind of camaraderie, that brotherhood, that family? So it meets so much of that that you come back to this, this world and it's hard to replicate that. It's really hard to replicate that. And then you go get some mundane job somewhere. Nobody's got that brotherhood that, I mean, not to say nobody, but it's hard to replicate that. And so inevitably you, you want to go back and you've, it's so peaceful ironically, being in a war zone. And so I I get
0: it. It's just, yeah, so clear and simple. It's so easy on your brain in some ways.
1: There's a very powerful book from this journalist, uh, Chris Hedges, who's been to more wars than probably most warriors, most veterans. He uh, he wrote this book called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. And just from the title, you can see it's, it's a really fascinating insight into the addictive nature of war.
0: So you, you've spent a, a lot of your life in edge states, from what I can tell. I mean, sort of your early adulthood, pretty deep into addiction. And then from addiction, sort of that phase of your early life addiction into your life in the Marines, and then back into another phase of addiction. And now into sort of the, the Firvana land, which is also edge state and extreme in a lot of ways. I mean, when have you ever experienced the mundane? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's been, that's been a struggle. Gotta meet people. girls. Ups and, downs, ups and downs of this. Like when I came back from Iraq, you know, after finishing college, I had a corporate job for a year and a half, obviously hated it. I mean, I hated everything about it. I but like back then, again, I was running away. I, I spent, I, after I quit my corporate job, I spent a month dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across Greenland in temperatures of minus 40 degrees. So once again, edge states, you know? So, I I was forced to, in some ways, manage and navigate the mundane at the time I got married. So I, you know, I couldn't be a mountain bum.
0: I love that you paired mundane and marriage together (laughs) in the same (laughs) sentence.
1: (laughs) Anyway. <laughs> but, but like, I guess what I mean is like yeah normalcy of life. Like I couldn't be, because when I went, I, when I came back in Iraq, I went to journalism school because I wanted to go back to war as a war journalist. I was a combat, combat journalist. And then I met my my wife at grad school. And so then it was like, all right, that's not conducive to, you know, going back to a combat zone as a journalist. So I was forced to figure out what's the normal, life to go live, you know? And that was hard. I mean, that, I think when I finally kind of sobered up, you know, I think I, I told you that I broke my sobriety after deciding to sober up, I broke it. And when I break, I break hard. Like, so I don't, it just wasn't, wasn't just one day of drinking. It was like,
0: <laughs> you broke it after that relationship, as that relationship was falling apart, right? As your marriage was ending.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, that was a trigger that pushed me into space. But there was so much more than that. And what I realized was a huge part of it was this constant seeking out of the extremes. And so the high is just another extreme, right? Because again, when like when I break, I'm not talking about having two beers, right? We're talking drinking a bottle a day until, I mean, I would drink until I pass out, wake up and drink again. This would go on for five to seven days until my body just couldn't take it and it would throw up everywhere. Sometimes, honestly, like the the withdrawal symptoms I went through, sometimes I want, like I think that the only reason I didn't die was I built up enough of a health base from at least eating healthy and exercising pretty hard, you know, that it could have been much, much worse. And so now it's a, still a constant practice of embracing the just, just being okay with the process of you know celebrating process over payoff not looking for that high and not looking for the high in any way whether it's a, like going into the spaces of darkness or going into the spaces of the light but just being okay with the normal and and actually allowing myself to really embrace that and uh, and focus on it and you know it's still it's still a challenge <laughs> without a doubt and I have tools that to to keep me focused and to keep me remembering this uh, but that was part of it was embracing the mundane part of it was also I struggled with like I realized this in the darkness retreat was I've always felt guilty for being happy. And so, inevitably, when you're not happy, you're always, you will eventually burn out. <laughs> you know, no matter, like the only things that was getting me as far as I got was just pure grit, pure will, pure willingness to suffer. But I just felt, I felt like guilty. Like, I, again, paradoxically, in the darkness, I found greater light within, in the sense that I had navigated a lot of my demons, you know, the survivor's guilt from losing friends in war and all this stuff. But I still realized that I've still struggled. And again, still a muscle I'm building that. I felt like I didn't, who am I to be happy? There's so much pain in the world. There's so much suffering in the world and you see it and you, and it's just, you know, why, I mean, as an example, when I was running across Liberia, you know, first day I'm running across the country, I meet this kid. He came up to me, we were running together, chatting. He lost his mother in the war. His father left him. He's living in this tiny village now in some, you know, poverty in Liberia uh, with his friend's family. He wanted to become a doctor. The odds of that actually happening are minimal. And I, I remember running and actually thinking this after I met him, continued my run. Why does he deserve that? He, what, what did I do to be born? I was born to parents where I was born. And luckily I, I got luck of the draw. You know why? did he get that what have we done differently and so I always felt that who do I get why do I get to be happy when there's so much pain in the world
0: was sorry was the kid in pain like was he miserable was he complaining to you
1: that, so he wasn't – and that's a great question because uh, – and that's a really valid point because, I mean, to, to that point, you know, I've seen kids in India who are on the streets who are happier than kids with all the money in the world in the U.S., you know. So to that point, that's valid. Uh, if that, So I get what you mean. And he wasn't, like, complaining. He was fine – you know, he he was – we were just chatting about his life and what he wanted to get. So he was just saying it in a very – normal way and so i guess to your point yeah that the suffering of course is relative there's people who objectively seem to have everything And we see this all the time and you know it in your work who have money wealth whatever this that and the other thing and they seemingly have everything and they're more miserable right so that's fair and uh but i guess yeah i guess i just struggled with that and the part of it i s- still hadn't wrestled with only now i wrestled with like as a very visceral example of this you know when i came back from the war when i navigated my ptsd sobered up and all that i had. I learned to embrace my guilt of losing a friend in the war. So I put a picture of my friend in the, up on my wall and it said, this should have been you, earn this life. And it's an intense thing to look at every day. But that guilt fueled me. It got me far. It finished my book until it took me too far, like anything. You know, what got you here won't get you there. And the guilt was sending me too far. So I changed it to honor his death, earn this life. Subtle difference, but a big difference. And then recently- this
0: A big difference. Yeah,
1: a big difference. And then like just literally, like this was like a couple of months ago, I was cleaning up my apartment and I stumbled into the folder where I still had the old picture of him that said- like this should have been you earned this life, and for the first time since the war, this thought entered my where my head where i felt i was i literally felt like I'm glad I didn't die out there. I'm glad it wasn't me.
0: Like the sense of gratitude.
1: Yeah. But I then felt immediately horribly guilty for feeling that. (laughs) And I just like, I had this very cathartic moment. I was just tearing up and just being with it and processing this whole thing. But it was the first time since the war that I ever felt that. Before that, you know, I've never once, it was like, I can't change it. Even when I healed from it, it was like, I can't change it. But it's still like, let me earn it, you know? And now it was like this moment of feeling grateful to be alive that was weird, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It felt unnatural to you.
1: Unnatural, exactly. (laughs) But cathartic.
0: Yeah. I feel like a lot of us sort of do the math on who deserves what, right? Who deserves to be happy? Who doesn't deserve to be happy? And who deserves suffering? Who doesn't deserve suffering? And it seems like both are inevitable. Like the math is always wrong.
1: Yeah, no. And that's so true, right? One of the most powerful books on this that I love is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. By Harold Kushner, it was one of the most profound answers to that question, and it's still it's still a hard thing because you know when you look at this world of like the law of attraction, so much in personal development, they talk about how I hear this all the time. You know, if you if you just choose this path, the universe will have your back, and I'm like, yeah, but what about the millions of people that the universe doesn't give a? Sh-? About, you know, they don't. It's easy to say that when we're sitting in comfort, when we're the underside of pain, and it's like we're easy to. Like I hear this all the time in this self help world, and I'm like, yeah, but
0: you won't hear it from me, by the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it frustrates me, and I get it. Like I get it's, and I get that it's positive, you know. But we, you know, what I'm talking about. Of course, you hear this so much, like. Oh, you choose this and the doors will... And it's like, yeah, but there's a lot of people that you can choose it and the doors will never open for them and their entire lives are going to be pure hell. And what about them? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I'm accepting more the randomness of the universe and, and, and realizing that, look, me being happy is not going to change the fact that suffering exists. But if anything, me being happy will let me do the work more. It'll, like, so looking at happiness as almost fuel to do the work. So if because if I'm, if I'm not happy and I'm just always miserable and always guilty, I've seen where that takes me. So if nothing else, let me at least be happy so I don't go into those spaces and I can at least do the work. So if it's a means to an end, so be it, whatever it takes to do the work.
0: I think one of the framings of it that I like is, is to sort of eliminate the categorical variable, right? You don't code it as yes, happy, no happy. It's not a zero or one sort of bimodal distribution. It's that all of us will, will go into seasons of more joy, into seasons of more grief, into seasons of more suffering. And it's all this sort of like blended together experience of emotion that makes up our journey. Like I don't seek to live in a state of happiness, nor would I seek to live in a state of suffering. Like they're both gonna come.
1: No, that totally makes sense. I mean, I always like to say that happiness is not the elimination of sadness. Happiness is the ability to find the gift in sadness. So it doesn't mean happy, like being smiling all the time. So I totally, totally resonate with what you mean and get it. Yeah, you know, I think that that, that we're gonna go through that. I guess part of my thing was even at some deeper level, I wasn't even allowing myself to feel joy, even when I, in any sense, in any context. And so, still, again, still a work in progress, but much better than it used to be.
0: <laughs> when have been the times when you were really afraid that you might die?
1: Many times, uh, multiple times. I had a few scenarios in in Iraq. I mean, when I went out there, to be honest with you, I went out there not expecting to come back alive. I went out there, like I literally, because I had lost my friend in the war before I went. And so, I had always like what happened was just as a quick story. Like why, and this kind of gives the context of death and how I approached it was, you know, when we joined the Marines, me and this buddy of mine, Neil. We got very close, same kind of Marine. We would train together, do everything together, volunteer to go to war together every chance we could get. Twice the Marines told us we were going last minute, they canceled it. But whenever we trained, you know, I'd beat him by a few seconds on a run, by a few points in the rifle range. So I'd always beat him by a few seconds or that kind of thing. But in the one one summer while I was off vacationing in India, he ended up finally finding a unit to go with because he volunteered to go with them. And he was a good Marine. So he got promoted to corporal. And as a result, he was in a position that got hit with an IED, a bomb, and he got killed. I had always felt that, I should not have been off vacationing. I should have stayed and I should have volunteered to go with him. And it should have been me that got in that promotion. It should have been me that died. And rationally, I get it, right? War is unpredictable. You can't predict Rationally, I get that. But emotionally, it doesn't change the guilt. So when I went out to Iraq, I was like, like finally. You know, I wasn't scared. In some ways, I wasn't scared. I was finally my chance to go.
0: Like, finally, I get to meet my bullet kind of thing? Like
1: Yeah, like, I, finally, I get to go to war. And finally, like... It was admittedly naive, of course, that this, 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 the glory of, you know, you look at, even if you look at even the Spartan mentality, there was beauty of dying in combat, the finest death, the warrior's death. And there was this sense of that. Like I gave away all my stuff. I was like, I don't come back all good, you know? (laughs) So, you know, it was this weird thing of dancing of the fear of, cause then I kept pursuing it. Like even with, even with the rock climbing before joining the Marines. And I used to rock climb up 60, 80, 100 foot rock walls with no rope. So you fall on that, you're gonna die, you know? If not, they hurt yourself, but, or die. So I never really, I guess, I guess to answer your question though, I never really felt this visceral fear of death because I was ready to accept it in many ways. I think there's there's value in fear of death that I now feel because I value life more, you know, than I did before. I was ready to die, so I wasn't fearing death.
0: You didn't have this sort of reaction to it. it. It was sort of an assumption.
1: Exactly. So even when I think about Iraq, like I, I you know, like I started saying that maybe I was, but to be honest with you, I don't think that was truly really, really scared to death too much out there. I didn't care if it happened or not. if I was ready to go, like you know. So uh, we had instances like I remember one day we were running in this cave. We were supposed to, were supposed to were potentially supposed to be insurgents, and being the first guy to go in any scenario, you're the most likely to get shot. And I, I was like, I was the first guy in. This other kid wanted to go ahead, but I was senior at him. I'm like, so I'm like negative. You're behind me, and so I was didn't end up going down, nothing went up going down, but I was the first guy walking in the cave. So I was like ready for it. And, and only now I think that I've experienced, um, I feel more fear of death with the things that I do now.
0: Because you're more you more committed to staying alive.
1: Exactly. So that's why I think fear of death is a good thing. I think fear of death to be like embracing death, embracing the mortality, like being present to our mortality. I've been blessed where I've experienced and tasted my own mortality and not just in war. I've almost been killed by a falling boulder in the Himalayas. The year after I skied across Greenland, a British explorer died on That very ice cap in a storm, you know? So many of the things I've done have been dangerous, not just going to war. So as a result, I've tasted my own mortality. And today, like Buddhism, for example, has a practice where you meditate on death. So I'm not saying I do that consistently, but I like to think of the fact that death is coming and stay. Present to that, like don't just ignore it, but look at death in the eye, and not in the sense of like live every day like it's your last, because if that's the case, I wouldn't do half the things I do because the work is hard, you know.
0: I would never check my email.
1: Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> exactly. There's so many things I wouldn't do every. So it's not in that I sense. Wouldn't
0: floss, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. We just go hang out. Let's chill, chill for this day. But it's like really just being present to the death, the fact that death is coming.
0: And I think in, just in my anecdotal experience working with people over the years, the people who have had up-close experiences of death, either the death of another person or, or very close to their own mortality, but who've been able to process those at a pretty deep level and hold them close, not kind of let them stay in the realm of fear and kind of this hyper-response. Those are the people who I have observed, have found a way to make life really meaningful and I think have experienced the deepest joy.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And obviously with your work, you didn't imagine you experienced that a lot and it totally makes sense. I've heard many studies on like how trauma, I mean, we only talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but we don't talk about post-traumatic growth enough. And there's so many who the trauma has actually enhanced their life and improved it. And even in death, like actually in that book, Harold Kushner, one of my favorite quotes of all time in that book, uh, what bad things happen to Good people. He says, the dead depend on us for their redemption and their immortality love that. Like when I think about those who have lost, not just my buddy in war, I've lost two junior Marines of mine have taken their own life. I've lost friends to addiction. Thinking about it that way is really valuable.
0: So a lot of the folks that are listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs. They're people who are, you know, sort of sticking their neck out there, forming a business, (laughs) trying to do something in the world that's generative. They're creating something. Lots in the software space, tech folks, and then all across the board. But I think one of the things that that is hard for me as an entrepreneur, and for many of the entrepreneurs that I serve, is that the nature of what it means to put yourself out there that way is in some ways to be on this roller coaster of edge states of like, I'm amazing, things are happening, my business is growing, it's great, Richard Branson gave me a high five, and then all the way in the other end of like, I'm going bankrupt next week. Like, all of my clients or my customers are leaving. And so, there's this like deep emotional roller coaster that goes along with entrepreneurship. I, I, does that phase you? You're, you're an entrepreneur now. Like, does that happen to you?
1: It has. It has before. And now, in the process of embracing the mundane, if you will, is part of it is also not just embracing the mundane, but it's like focusing on the process regardless of the outcome. So whether it's a high, whether it's a low, not getting caught up in in the result. So whether I get a sale or whether... I've gotten, gone weeks with no sales, It's irrelevant. What matters is, am I doing the work and what's the lessons in the process? You know, so really focusing on that. So it's kind of the stoic mentality, right? Like the external reality, whatever. May, and again, this was only recently. Am I much better at it now? Now it's like, I'm really like much, much better at it. And if you look at great, you can
0: find the center line,
1: exactly the center lines. And because, and I'm like, again, I mean, clearly I'm the ones who constantly is chasing the high in both contexts, like looking deeper into the darkness and deeper in the light. Right. But now it's like, like, regardless of what the world is throwing at me, am I doing the work? What's the lessons? I mean, ultimately, I always like to think of it this way too, right? Like, problems are not going to go away. Even if, whether you're starting a business, whether you have a million dollar business, whether you have a hundred million dollar business, problems are always there. So the problem is never the problem. The problem is how we approach the problem. Like I was asked in one interview, somebody asked me a very specific scenario, like, okay, if somebody comes to you and let's say they just went through divorce, what's this, what's, how would you help them? And my, my, my answer was, regardless of the specific scenario you give me, the fundamental problem is everybody is looking for the easiest way out of that problem to get away from the pain, to get to a point where there's no pain. And that's the real problem.
0: The escape is the problem. Is that what you're saying? Yeah.
1: Part of it, yes. The one is the escape. And two, you're never going to get to a point where suddenly problems are gone. So the, the reality is the faster you accept the true nature of problems. Like I always like to say, progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems. So it's not that progress You when, you, when, this, when this one problem goes away, there'll be suddenly none. There'll be a new one. But as long as you're having new ones, that's a good thing. So what the key is shifting your relationship to problems and embracing the, the the reality that a problem is an opportunity. So one of the ways I navigate it is I always look at how do I turn a barrier into a question? So like a, bra- a poor problem becomes a wall, but when you turn this back, like a barrier is a wall, but when you turn into to a question, a question becomes a door. So as an example of this, you know, I always felt like I could never be a ultra runner and a billion dollar businessman like Richard Branson building the sphere of empire. I could have, there's no way. This is a problem. It's a wall. But I turned to a question. How can I do this? How can I do both? What ways can I train while working on my business? So like, as an example, now I only schedule phone calls, unless it's a podcast interview like this, but oh, phone calls, I only schedule phone calls while I run. This way I'm getting my miles in while I'm training.
0: I've heard that about you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I do voice, voice notes with my team, with clients while I run. And I do, and I do like phone calls while I run. Like here's another example. I worked with a student who kept saying, I can't have money to go to college. I don't have, I don't have money. I don't, can't go to college. So that's a barrier. If I turn it into question. It's like, who, how do I find scholarships? Who do I, who do I have to become to be worthy of scholarship? Where is their money? You know. So looking for that and realizing problems are not going to go away. So embrace it and just accept that they're going to be there and choose to seek out learnings. Whether it's a victory or it's a loss, the response should be the exact same, not a high, not a low. Exactly the same. What did I learn from? What's like all growth is two things find the problem, fix the problem, find what's working, and do more of it. So, regardless of the outcome, just do those two things constantly. And that's how you maintain the stoic nature to keep moving forward.
0: I mean, it strikes me that the more problems that you encounter in life, just the better you are at problem solving. And the more that you're like, yeah, i kind of been there, seen that before. I've been sleep deprived. I've been hungry. I've been lost. I've been, (laughs) I've had that broken bone.
1: Yeah. And that's the only way you build resilience is going through the suck, right? Like going into the hard times, you're not going to get any stronger in the comfort zone. So problems are opportunities.
0: So how do you counterbalance that with letting yourself be in the comfort zone because i think there is undoubtedly like deep value in rest, retreat, vacation, cuddling, like just the times when you're like i'm safe and happy and well. And so, you know, when when do you know, Akshay, that it's time to shift from like problems, darkness, embracing suffering, not escaping, blah blah, blah over into like. I'm just going to curl up and have some ice cream. You probably don't eat ice cream, but whatever your thing is.
1: Uh, no, it's a, it's a really good point. So this is, once again, has been a work in progress that I haven't been the best at, <laughs> as you can probably tell by the question.
0: But. Uh, let me help you. <laughs> I'm real good at ice cream.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's, I haven't been the best, but now I'm getting better in, in realizing that. And so this is one thing, like a caveat. My way of not saying is the only way to caveat out to what I'm about to say <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination is not mine. But like for me, when I look at going into the comfort zone is recovery is a tool to get stronger. So I look at recovery as like rest and recovery is only the vehicle to continue coming back into the fight stronger. That's it. So, so I mean, I do go into spaces of comfort, but like, and this is also recently, and it's a choice who you want to become. Like I no longer, I would be more uncomfortable sitting on a beach chilling than I would be running like a hundred mile or whatever. Like I don't want that anymore. And that's just me. I'm not saying right. Like if I do get that, it has to be earned. Like as an example, when I went through South Africa or vacation with family, I had just come back from skiing across an ice cap for one month. So, you know, I was kind of ready for some rest and recovery. So the only way a rest and recovery for me has, has to be earned through some real suffering, like the deeper, the greater, the rest, the greater the suffering that has to be warranted in order to earn that rest. So that's kind of how I approach it is I'm not looking for days and there's no right or wrong. Like everybody's got to choose. So one way I like to think is, is choose who you want to be. So get clear on your mission, your vision for your life, like a choosing a personal mission, like companies do this, but do it for yourself, a philosophy. So I have a driving. So my driving philosophy, like my core ethos is the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. That's the driving philosophy for who I am. I have a mission statement, a vision statement, my values, and that's my philosophy. I invite everybody to get clear on that. And then you make decisions from that space because that becomes your North Star, that becomes your compass. So for me, if I'm not seeking that inner war, something's wrong. So I'm not looking for days off. Like I don't, like I, when I, you know, recently, and, and only now have I taken it really to another level of like embracing this at this level. That's why I study people like Kobe Bryant's, Michael Jordan's, and you look at guys at that level. I mean, it's, it, you have to be great to get into the NBA or get in the NFL or whatever. To be at that level, you have to be a different level of great. And the mindset that those guys had their work ethic, they had no days off. I mean, in order to do that though, there's a dark side to mastery, right? And I, I, you, there's a definitely a dark side. There's. I
0: mean, when you say no days off, like- Aren't we talking about like muscle breakdown or risk for injury if there's no either variation in what you're doing or like strategic rest?
1: Strategic rest. So, no days off doesn't mean I don't recover. But, like, I'm training six to seven days a week. I'm always, I mean, one, one day off at the very most. But my day off means if I'm taking a day off, it doesn't mean I'm not doing anything and sitting, you know, I'll, it means I'm, I'm maybe doing my muscle recovery. I have my compression boots. I was doing my compression boots earlier. Or if I'm taking a day off from running, then I'm working. You know, so I'm, I'm not taking, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll go for a movie with my family here. And then I'm here in India right now, you know, I'll go for a movie with them in the evening or something, but I'm always like, what's the work that needs to be done? And what's, so I, if I'm, if I'm basically, here's the thing, like there's cognitive energy and physical energy, right? So if I'm exercising too much cognitive energy, my business, my work, then I need rest. And you'll just notice that you can't focus for that long. We, we notice you'll notice your brain fading. So when I feel it, and now at this point, I'm pretty good at like having my life systematized, because I've figured out where it works. And okay, so there's systems for everything, there's structure, you follow the structure. And so when I I come in, my long winded answer to your question is that-
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult question, by the way.
1: (laughs) No, I love the question. You're you're doing fine. (laughs) I love the questions you're asking is that you take the days off, like coming from a place of that, like the recovery is fuel to me to get in the fight stronger. That's it. And I'm, so I'm not looking for days on the beach. I'm not looking for, you know, to chill out and do all that stuff. That's just, and again, that's just me, but I don't want that. And so inevitably, like I've realized that I'm embracing extreme. That's like, I'm single now. I'm probably gonna be single for quite a while. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Well, it's interesting because that's, this is what I'm thinking as you are, as you're saying this is I'm thinking, okay, those days, you know, for me, when I'm not training in my physical discipline or when I'm not working, when I'm on the beach, I'm with my children, which is its own, its own work. Right. In fact, if we frame it like this, like there's no, but I mean, work and busyness, but like even just the like, Hey, look, it's a crab. Let's follow that for a while. That's work. That's relationship building. That's connection building. That's like soul building. So I think, I guess so much of it depends on if you, if you're defining or sort of thinking about this inner war and this inner thing that you're struggling with, the extent to which you toss relationships and intimacy and connection in the thing that you're pursuing is going to change your your framing of what's work and not work. Hmm.
1: I got you. No, no, that's great. That's a very, yeah, that's a, love, love that. That is a great point. And, and it would be like, you know, I've thought that I eventually I would like family kids and all that. But yeah, it's a different kind of work that I mean that's more terrifying to me with kids than most of the other things I do. Oh just strap
0: them on the back and run. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll
1: be great. <laughs> exactly. They can go running with them. So <laughs> no, but it's it is a great point that I think, yeah, the the, the definition of the work will change as it evolves. But, I mean, inevitably, though, when you pursue a path at a certain level, you're making sacrifices, right? Like, I mean, again, coming to, like, the guys like the Kobe Bryants, you know, and those guys, they didn't have, they didn't have time for friends. So, they would, if, when they weren't training, they were just with their, you know, with their family. They all have family and kids. But you're making sacrifices. You're making sacrifices to go on vacations. You're making sacrifices on fun time. Like, Kobe talks about how his teammates would go on vacations. You know, they'd go to Vegas. They'd celebrate. Kobe would be back in the gym training. So you're making a lot of sacrifices. The dark side of mastery is that like sacrificing relationships like loneliness because the path is inevitably more lonely. I mean, I'm already noticing the choices I'm making on burning some relationships because people are like, come hang out more. And I'm like, nope, not anymore. Cause I used to, like, I would go over here in India. I'd go up, meet this person, that person, that person, you know, go do the hangout, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, sorry, I can't. And not every, most people don't get it. They're not going to get it, you know? And so they just, and I'm like, look, it's not you personally. It's just, this is you know, choices I'm making. And, but again, most people aren't going to get it. So you're going to burn relationships along the way. But I also feel like to me, cause also part of it is that to me, the mission is more important than me and what I like, I don't care about what, you know, it's not about me. Like when I see the work that Firavana does people, like I just had somebody write me saying their book saved my life, you know, get me off Xanax, struggle with people. It's like, it's not about me. There's people who need it. And the work is more important than me and what, and my own stuff, like, so get out of my own way, you know? And if that means burning a few relationships because somebody wants to go hang out and, and chill till midnight, who cares?
0: <laughs> well, it means it means intentionally deciding. How, how you chase down what it is that you most want in your life rather than sort of like many of us do or maybe even how you described your early life of, as just reacting. Like whatever was thrown at you, you dealt with that. Whatever's thrown at you, you dealt with that. And now that you're in a place where you're much more intentional and strategic about saying this is the life I'm pursuing and you can throw this at me all day and all night, but I'm not, I'm not reacting. Like I don't, it's, it's not a thing. I don't care.
1: Absolutely. And then you have to be really firm in it because it is hard. I mean, it's much more lonely this journey. It's much more lonely, you know? I had like started to kind of get in a relationship, meet somebody, but I'm I'm admittedly pretty intense, which might come as a shocker, but <laughs> I wouldn't I
0: wouldn't imagine that.
1: <laughs> um
0: what are you pursuing right now? What race are you running? What mountain are you climbing? What glacier are you glaciering? I don't even know what the verb is there.
1: Like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So my life is two things: is my training, my fitness, and my business. That's basically my path. And so, in the fitness realm, in the adventure realm, I'm currently, you know, constantly training. I'm going to be doing a few hundred miles this year, and also I'm planning, like, actually, a uh, three weeks from today, I'm skiing. I'm doing a one week ski expedition in northern Norway under the northern lights like skiing in the wilderness, that's going to be epic. And then in November, I'm skiing across the Patagonian Ice Gap, planning on getting back to the mountains. It's been a long time since I've been in the Himalayas and been in the mountains and uh, skiing to the North Pole, South Pole, eventually getting into some of those polar expeditions as well. So that's kind of in the adventure realm of getting back into this year. I put up a little temporary pause on it. The last one I did was the run across Liberia which was last year. And so now kind of getting back into it a little big time, but... um,
0: Sorry, just real quick. And I I want to hear about this. Like, do you have like a list in your head or?
1: (laughs) It's a monster list. Like one lifetime isn't going to fulfill the list of adventure things. So it's like, if I don't get to do it all, so be it. But whatever I get to do, I'm going to embrace the journey of doing it. Because there's no way, like the list, like... Because I mean, even doing these things to be a full time, like each one of these things, the level I need to train at to do the things I need to do versus the level of work I need to put in to build a business I want to build. Each one of these can be a 24 hour venture. So it's like inevitably by choosing one in choosing both, you can't do all of each, right? Like, so my business might move a little slower. I'm okay with that sacrifice. At the same time, I might not get to do all the adventures, but I'm okay with that sacrifice because I get to do both. So you know, it's a choice that I'm making. Yeah. But there's a huge list of scuba diving, climbing, rock climbing, just every, you know, all kinds of adventures. I've done like skydiving, base jumping. I want to get into it all.
0: (laughs) I mean, what is the like, quote unquote, craziest, most death defying activity that you, besides war that you have willingly intended that you've have done?
1: That I have done. I would say free soloing, free climbing up rock walls without rope. And solo mountaineering, like I did a solo mountain climb in Bolivia where you're solo climbing on a glacier. I mean, there's many mountaineers who are a million times better than me would not solo climb on a glacier, you know, because there's a level of danger involved in that. And solo rock climbing is insane dangerous. There's, there's zero room for error. I mean, there's tons of rock climbers who are the best in the world that have died from solo that. So I wouldn't do that. I don't do that anymore because the line of risk is too high. And I'm choosing not to take that line of risk because again, I mean, it's all, again, we all make choices to me. I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to make that risk. I'm not going to do that anymore.
0: What's the riskiest thing on your plan list?
1: Probably base jumping. I do want to attempt base jumping and cave diving are considered two of the most dangerous sports in the world have been cave diving i would love to get back into it a little bit and even with base jumping like i want to dabble in it i wouldn't make it a professional thing in terms of being a full-time base jumper again the line the more you do it and then, i don't i mean i know a ton of base jumpers have gotten injured and obviously some have been killed but it's a dangerous dangerous game so but i would like to at least experience it so those are a few things that but again it's not necessary it's not like if i don't do it it's not the end of the world you know what i mean there's um, huge things on the radar so the, the sports i'm choosing to pursue now are not as inherently like risky in terms of life threatening they're more like suffering they're more just an exercise and endurance and stuff like polar expeditions are not extended as, pain exactly exactly <laughs> they're not as like <laughs> you know south pole or the north pole they're not as life-threatening as solo mountaineering but they're and exercise and just pure suffering.
0: <laughs> you might not have all your toes, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One toe, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not a big deal. Live, yeah. All right. So
0: I, I'd love to hear about your unimpressively ambitious um, work goals
1: as well. <laughs> so with work goals, what I am building is this fear of like empire, what I'm what I'm working on is building kind of what like Richard Branson built with Virgin, you know, this multiple series of, of different products and services. But I like Virgin not getting into sort of mobiles, airlines and stuff like that, staying in the space of well-being. So working on creating like a Firvana fitness, Firvana festivals, Firvana Retreats, Firvana Foundation. I have my own nonprofit called the Firvana Foundation, Firvana Foods we're the real, the real platform that we are starting to build this year, which is the most daunting, terrifying thing. Cause I don't know anything about getting into tech startup world, but that's where I'm now delving into in the tech startup world is creating this virtual training ground to help people walk their hero's journey and to live their own personal legend as Pablo Coelho says, you know, to live their own personal legend. So we're creating a virtual training ground because I firmly believe, and I say this with the uh, great confidence and great humility as well. Like fear of honor is the path to doing that. So using the methodologies because I've been blessed and again, lived through this experience and also studied it, studied mastery that this is the avenue. So creating to kind of, like I like to say to democratize greatness, you know, to, cultivate legend in self and others is kind of the mission. So how do you help? And fundamentally, the way to do that, like at the highest level is to develop a positive relationship, the experience of suffering, the most important skill to master is to develop a positive relationship to pain and struggle, however, it shows up, right, like fear, stress, anxiety, and not many people are talking about that we live in a world that's feeding the easiest way out. And that's nonsense you know the easy is not better easy only makes your lives worse and we're collectively seeing that so the idea is developing our positive relationship to suffering so people can i like to say find live and love their worthy struggle i call your path your worthy struggle not like i don't like that term follow your passion passion is good to have but follow your passion often conveys the idea that you know life will be sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and and people say you know if you love what you do it'll never be a day of work in your life and that's nonsense like it, i be. Mean, that's exactly. totally bullshit. Yeah, and so the idea—that's why I call it your worthy struggle. Like your—it doesn't have to be running ultra marathons or climbing mountains or maybe you know whatever you want. I have a friend who's about to be a grandmaster in chess. That's her worthy struggle, you know, and that's awesome. So I'm helping her with do, doing that. So that's kind of the next vision is getting into tech startup world. It's daunting. I have terrifying. I have no idea how to do it. Thankfully, I have advisors who are, and mentors who are way smarter than me. <laughs> they don't do dumb things like running 80 miles and spending seven days in darkness. So.
0: <laughs> well, they can do different things. They have different superpowers.
1: Exactly. exactly.
0: <laughs> we all have our our, our hero skills. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> so that's where that's where it's going now going is working on building that. Yeah, it's exciting.
0: Anything ever keep you up at night?
1: all of it <laughs> the only way the only way I get to sleep is if I mean I have to be just knackered at the end of the day so at the end of the day I'm generally speaking these days I am I'm physically and mentally
0: extraordinarily exhausted. tired yeah
1: so by the end of the day I'm beat I'm burned out and then I get to sleep otherwise it's uh <laughs> it's everything and like I said I mean to this day I still have to wrestle with the temptation to want to go back into war zones and conflict zones because That to me is more appealing than working on a tech startup. But at the same time, tech startup can, I can make a greater impact doing that than the potentially, let's say one to five lives I may make an impact for by going into war zone. So in some ways that's even more selfish, but I have to, I have to be wary of that and notice it and, and recognizing that this is my war now, that when I'm staring at my computer screen, I mean, I literally have to remind myself almost daily that this is your war now. Own it, embrace this. This is the battle.
0: This is the battle. Exactly. What do you call it? The worthy. Struggle? This is the
1: worthy struggle, exactly. <laughs> so yeah.
0: Well, it's it's quite a pleasure to be able to talk with you after hearing your name like weekly for months, <laughs> and then when I saw like that you were on Jordan Harbinger's show and Dr. Drew, I was just like, okay, I've got to talk to this man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'm honored. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Love the. The way uh, the questions you asked and the way you think is really cool.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time, and um, I look forward to to getting to watch how your uh, your work and your world changing struggle sort of unfold.
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you. Looking forward to hopefully meeting up soon as well.
0: Yeah. So, if people want to know more about about you obviously we'll put a link to your book fearvana in the show notes people can find more about you there any other place that you live online or or
1: yeah like you said yeah the books on amazon and all the profits are going to these causes we support so all the profits go to charity for the book so any support there's always appreciated and you can find me at fearvana.com f-e-a-r-v-a-n-a
0: yeah okay beautiful thanks akshay
1: yeah thank you
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.